This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today is very special as we celebrate our 100th episode. Thank you to all the listeners and guests throughout the country and across the world who tune in to listen and contribute in the global discussion of immigration today. It has been an honor for me to share this space with you, which makes today's guest that much more rewarding to have on. Harvard Business School professor William Kerr joins the podcast. Will is a business administration professor whose research and advisement focuses on entrepreneurial management, specifically on how companies and economies explore new opportunities to generate growth. Will's recent book, The Gift of Global Talent, How Migration Shapes Business, Economy, and Society, explores the global race for talent and how countries and businesses compete for high-skilled migrants and immigration's role in catalyzing U.S. innovation. Thank you for taking this journey with me. You are truly appreciated. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. When you look at the trends about the inventors in America, one thing that really just pops out to you uh, very quickly is how reliant America is on uh, foreign talent for its innovation and, and new startups and how much that's grown over the last 40 years. And so as you think about like the levers that we can have for unlocking new uh, innovation, growth and so forth and competitiveness in our economy, that's an area that I early on in my career kind of uh, um, started to work on and then it kind of snowballed from there. Got it. Let's talk about those those different levers, right? So in today's world economy, what are some of those main drivers contributing to a country's economic competitiveness? Yeah, well, competitiveness is really a function of several things. I mean, it's a, I can think of one group of things. It's, it's the capabilities that a country has. Uh, and that those capabilities are certainly the, the people that are working in that uh, country, their skill sets, uh, what they're prepared to do. Uh, there's technology differences across countries, how close they are to the frontier. There's differences in capital stocks. So there's a capability side to this. Mm -hmm. Then there's a policy side, which can affect how competitive a country is. And those policies can range from labor markets over to tax policy to trade policy. And then there's some other things like culture and so forth. Mm -hmm. What's been really important over the last uh, several decades is the increasing emergence of the knowledge economy. Uh, and how much it focuses on being at the forefront of business applications in a most recent format, uh, the digitalization of many industry spaces and how the, you know, that really can turn traditional sectors upside down or at least, you know, rechange re how we create value in those sectors and also who captures the value that, that, that emerges. Right. And uh, that's, as we've moved ever more from a world that focus on, you know, kind of wrenches and hardware and kind of, you know, oil or like those kind of just uh, core natural capital intensive work to stuff that's more knowledge intensive, that shifted the focus ever more into the talent space. So uh, we've been very competitive in terms of the knowledge base sectors and also top tier universities. Now, how are other countries, they, they see that uh, America is very strong in entrepreneurship and these knowledge-based uh, sectors. 
and universities, they are looking to narrow the gap. What are they doing to compete against what we have here? Well, let me begin with, I think, a, a slightly broader framing. Sure. We, we'll, it includes the United States in this. Right. So when we talk about developing your talent base uh, and pushing forward uh, the opportunities. I, I mentioned earlier that the United States is very reliant on immigrant talent right. uh, for innovation entrepreneurship. And we think roughly about a quarter of our entrepreneurs and inventors are foreign born in the United States uh, today. That's a lot. Uh, it's important. Uh, and that number has increased substantially over the last four decades. But it's also helpful to sort of flip that around and say, even in the U.S. context, that means three out of four of our inventors and entrepreneurs are not foreign born. They're, they're people that have come from the U.S. So a starting foundation is goes through all of those competitiveness aspects that you described. Of You've got to have good infrastructure. You have to have good education systems. You have to have all of the, the pieces that you need to put into place to be a very uh, effective workforce. And then the second thing is being attractive to global talent more broadly. And these actually turn out to be uh, in surprising ways related in that if I am, uh, a, you know, if I'm an enterprising uh, person who's looking to develop the next uh, great big idea, uh, you know, in the e-commerce space or something similar. Well, what am I wanting to look for? I want to look for a place that has uh, a great sort of rule of law, a structure that helps me to get my business off the ground. But then I also really want to have a skilled workforce that's going to be able to scale my business up. And so the strength of those local kind of education sectors and the local kind of workforce makes it more attractive for people to bring their businesses uh, to, uh, to the country. Likewise, I'm, if I'm looking at quality of life, where am I going to send my own kids to school? Uh, and how can I then rely on it? So there tends to be often uh, linked around. Now, in terms of the country-specific strategies to try to kind of make sure that they get their fair share or their slice of kind of the global talent, it really a lot depends upon the context that one finds yourself in. And what sort of natural scale do you have? Uh, and then also, what are the networks that you're trying to, to, to create? And so some of the natural scale is that if you are Canada and you are a reasonable sized country and you're right proximate to the United States, you can have a whole bunch of opportunities about trying to uh, foster uh, uh, talent, immigrant talent communities uh, in your nation, as well as also make the linkages between U.S. business and, and Canadian business. On the other hand, if you are a smaller, more remote country, uh, if you're, say, a Chile or a Finland or something like that, you have to be thinking a little bit more about what networks you're creating to specific places. How can you be a bit more targeted in terms of the investments that you're making into those uh, into those talent streams? Right. In your book, you you mentioned there are a few distinct bottlenecks actually found along this pathway to citizenship. We understand the immense amount of opportunity that we have here. And now as the world is becoming more globalized and more competitive, especially high-skilled labor, they are able to have the pick of the litter, <laughs> you know, in terms of, of jobs and opportunities. America is competing with other top tier countries. And you said that there's a few bottlenecks and I just wanted to dig into that more of what you mean by that. Like, could you identify yeah, yeah. what they are? Yeah, so let, let, let's talk to a, a couple of aspects of this. And I wanna kind of preface 
uh, and your your listenership to this uh, immigration focused podcast, I think we'll be able to pick up on this pretty well. The United States immigration system is very complex and it's very big. Uh, and there's a lot of migration to the country that happens through family based channels and a lot that's through employment based channels. And most of what we're talking about today is about the employment based migration. And if you focus on that particular uh, set of things, you can think about this pathway that goes from you know, maybe being a student uh, into employment. Uh, and that can be temporary-based employment like the H-1B visa program or something uh, similar. If you're a student, perhaps you're on an OPT uh, transition right. into a green card or permanent residency, and then ultimately into citizenship. Mm -hmm. And of course, it, it's kind of like a, a, a bus line in that some people are going to get on and off at various spots. Some are going to go all the way from you know being first here perhaps as a student uh, or as a child of, a, of another migrant or coming here for university uh, all the way through citizenship. Others will be here for several years as employment and then uh, go back to the uh, to their home country or, or to some other place. Mm -hmm. So, kind of thinking about though that conceptual pipeline, where we often see the strains happen are when the sort of pipes that are in the setup are are of different sizes. So if you think about our student population, uh, the student population, things like F visas, have been growing substantially uh, in the United States over the last uh, couple decades. And um, there's not really a limit on how much the university systems can uh, can request or can allocate in terms of F visas. Uh, that's, that's left over to the universities and universities have been growing their foreign student populations. Mm -hmm. However, if you are on a foreign student uh, visa and you want to become a, uh, you want to work for a U.S. company afterwards, and you're not getting married to an American or something like that, you're going to be applying for something like the H-1B visa program. But those programs are substantially smaller, and they're also fixed in size. And so, where we kind of find these bottlenecks happen is when the the student visa, the student group that's seeking a job in the United States gets much bigger than the potential pipe that's ready to uh, to receive them. And a lot of the the challenges that many of your listeners will have had with OPT extensions and so on and so forth connect into making that um, making that transition. Likewise, there's a transition that happens from being a uh, temporary visa holder to having that green card or the permanent residency. Uh, and one of the one of the sort of ways that we are allocating our green cards in the United States has a country specific cap uh, to it as to how many we can allocate every year to France versus China. And if you're particularly coming from China and India, then you're not only facing kind of the cap or the allocation, it's about employment pieces, but you're also facing this country specific cap and that can create really long waiting lists. Right. So in each of these settings, there are things that we could think about first, which is how, you know, what's the size of the program and where are these mismatches in terms of the size? And second, how are we allocating the various visas that we do have? Uh, and are those allocations you know, the, the, the make the most sense in terms of prioritizing the uses uh, and, and, and the talent that we most want to have in the country. Got it. And when it comes to the cap, 
maybe we have something that more reflects the the population trends in recent times, right? Something more more in line rather than relying on something that has been in intact for for decades and hasn't changed, right? Hasn't changed with the actual times. Yeah, I mean, you're 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 for example, I think pointing towards the H1B visa program cap, correct? Which uh, has been set for over a decade now at 65,000 regular visas, and there's 20,000 that have an advanced degree from the U.S. school exemption that's attached onto that. And that program structure size is more or less what it was uh, in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, it it had one period of time in the early 2000s where it went almost up to 200,000 before before it came back down. And yes, it's a challenge when, uh, especially given the the difficulties that Washington can have in terms of reaching consensus. It's a challenge when you have this decade-long battle in order to set a figure, and then that figure is going to be more or less held constant or permanent with an economy that's changing size and changing employment rates and so on and so forth uh, over the decades that come. So the more that we could index or link our immigration structure to the underlying kind of growth of the economy mm-hmm. that that would help us size this a little bit a little bit better. Uh, you know, one of the political realities of the United States is that we are not going to be able to uh, get into what some people have called immigration engineering. Mm-hmm. So if you're Australia, you have a country that's small enough and coherent enough that you can almost think about changing your immigration structure you know, every year, two years, three, like you, you can be responsive to the data that you're sensing and be able to, to make those changes. I don't think anyone looking at how we determine immigration in the United States has any belief that we would ever be able to do immigrant engineering, immigration engineering. Uh, so we're going to have to think about maybe better how we can go ahead and build into the, the choices that we make some automatic adjustment mechanisms so that we don't really need to to kind of continually battle about this, you know, for the next decade before another change could be made. Got it. Got it. Have a system already in place where it can more flexibly move with the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the more that we're able to um, create something that uh, can expand and even contract perhaps uh, yeah. according to the agreed upon mechanisms the, the less we're going to have these sort of uh, all out battles to come up with one number that's going to be our new number when we go to the next uh, Every election next season, <laughs> the same questions yeah. keep coming up. With that, critics will say, all right, what do we do with the rise of inequality that's already happening? In America, we, we you know we hear that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor. What happens to the already natural-born Americans if now they're competing with uh, more high-skilled workers and them being added to the system? Will that further exacerbate this this trend, this this widening of the gap, or is it something that we're missing? The inequality aspects of immigration are very important to to talk through. And let me begin with a a couple of just kind of broad uh, facts here. So one, when you think about the skilled worker workforce in the United States, uh, you find comparable levels of immigration throughout that skill distribution. Mm -hmm. They may be slightly more tilted even towards the highest of skill, but you're going to find uh, that throughout the upper parts of the wage distribution, 
immigrants are are are, are fairly naturally represented uh, in front mm-hmm. of this. Uh, and that that's important because it doesn't automatically mean that well I I, th- I put in a bunch of, of skilled immigrants therefore suddenly American inequality is going to expand. In fact, you often even have you know groups that are advocating against immigration, saying well the problem with Im- with with more Im- skilled immigration is that it's going to reduce the wages of skilled U.S. native workers. Well, that would actually be compressing inequality. That would not be expanding inequality uh, were, were that to happen. This, but the, the more important part here is that even though you can have at times displacement that happens due to skilled immigration, what we often observe very fast uh, in this process is more innovation and job opportunities being created. And that provides more opportunities for skilled natives in the country. It also finds more opportunity for unskilled or, or lower skilled natives uh, in the country. This is not a, a fixed pie that we are trying to divide up among people. The economy can grow substantially, especially as you bring in uh, people that really have the, the capabilities and skill sets to push forward uh, what our firms are doing, the types of innovations that they're creating, uh, the ways that, um, that we're going to be able to compete in, uh, in global product markets. Uh, and that can be something that spills over uh, in, into a lot of groups. I'm not someone that approaches the immigration landscape and says nobody ever, you know, kind of, you know, gets harmed uh, uh, due to skilled immigration. A lot of my work has uh, specifically focused on older tech workers Mm -hmm. and try to understand some of the implications that it has for their career uh, prospects. What I want to, though, ultimately point out to is that the weight of the evidence, the strong weight of the evidence is towards the beneficial effects that skilled immigration uh, engenders. And I have in the book, uh, Gift of Global Talent, argued strongly about if we improve some of the allocation mechanisms. So if we make sure that we're providing the visas that we're granting each year to their very best purposes, we will move ever more into really you know, getting a lot of bang for the buck in terms of the immigration structure with with, with even fewer people being uh, potentially harmed by the process. Got it. Yeah. And I think one of the best cases lies in the level of entrepreneurship and how that creates more jobs. You know, you can go to the biggest example, you know, think about Steve Jobs, like his father was a, a Syrian immigrant, right? Had a son who developed Apple, right? And how many jobs that created and how much wealth that brought to America and uh, to the world. You, we can think in those terms. So you might take one job and you make 10,000. <laughs> well, the, the immigrant entrepreneurship is a, a very good kind of case study to surface here for a minute. Mm-hmm. It's almost at, I'd, I'd say probably about 28% if I'm trying to extrapolate the, you know, the, the, the known data trends outward for a couple more mm-hmm. years, probably about 28% today of America's entrepreneurs are f- foreign born. Uh, and to your point, this, uh, is the, this is the way that we generate new jobs. Uh, like it's young companies and new startup companies that really are the creator of new jobs uh, uh, in, in the economy uh, and then the scaling up uh, of, those, of those businesses. And a remarkable thing about our 
you know, I, when you have a number like 28% are, are entrepreneur or are entrepreneurs or immigrant is that we do not have an immigrant entrepreneur visa category. Mm. Many mm. other countries look at this and they say exactly what you just said, which is this is the ultimate free lunch. Someone's going to come in here and they're going to create jobs. Right. And we don't have that. And it, virtually every year in Congress, there is bipartisan support for being able to generate an immigrant entrepreneur visa uh, category uh, in the United States. And then for a variety of political reasons, it, it, it falls short of ultimately uh, being, uh, being passed. And so I, I think of this kind of like the innovation area as, a, as an area where the United States offers entrepreneurs such amazing, op- amazing prospects. Think about you know, a 300 million plus economy all with a single language, uh, unified rule of law, kind of going across the, you know, there's state level differences in this sure. policy or that policy, but sure. but all accessible, so on and so forth. Uh, and that is an enormous beacon for people around the world that want to create their businesses. But our, our immigration system hasn't really helped that process. It's been more almost of a, of a hindrance towards the U.S. being the leading country for immigrant entrepreneurship rather than a help. And we we should change that. Mm. We, we should we should think about how we are going to, you know, finally pass something that's like immigrant entrepreneurship, because if there's one place I think we can all agree on that, that's that's one of them. Uh, and right. so let's take advantage of that. And then ideally, if we get a few quick wins uh, where we can see beneficial effects, then that's going to help us better tackle some of the harder questions. Yeah, that's very interesting. Like uh, entrepreneurship visa. Is there any country you can just think off the top of the head that we could potentially model from? Oh, I think uh, I, I, there's 20, 30 countries. Yeah. Most every country, most every advanced country has a form of a of an immigrant entrepreneur okay. visa, right. and the U.S. has one form of this, which is uh, the EB five investor program. If you are able to invest. Uh, the numbers more than a million dollars today. It's like 1.6 million. I forget the exact number, but if you're able to invest a substantial amount of money into a business in the country, uh, you basically are given the the, the fast lane towards a green card mm-hmm. to come. Uh, and every year we are basically maxing out that that visa program. That works if you're a very wealthy Chinese business. Uh, man, woman who right. wants to come to the country uh, and perhaps bring their kid uh, for, for work. It doesn't work if you are a graduating student from the University of Michigan and you have this great idea, uh, but you know, you're a graduating student, you're living off ramen noodles and your great idea. Uh, and so that's where other countries are going to be better equipped for handling it, whereas we don't have a policy that is amenable in those types of situations. Uh, and so all countries then kind of differ in terms of how they're going to vet the entrepreneur. Usually there's some requirements about the entrepreneur's qualifications. They have to show certain levels of you know, financial uh, stability uh, for, say, three or four years. 
there's uh, some countries then vet the actual business idea, whereas others are more like, well, I'm going to give you a conditional visa for a few years, and then you've got to achieve these sort of uh, standards or marks, uh, and then you'll you'll kind of be given a, another visa that goes public. So countries mm -hmm. then differ about the specifics, but the idea is to allow someone who does not have a million dollars or more to invest in a business to get started uh, and pursue a promising idea and then and then build from there. Got it. Got it. These are all things that uh, I think is very interesting to consider. Uh, now get into more uncertain territory. So if you can pontificate with me a little bit here. Pontification is always good, especially when it's completely uncertain. Right, right. <laughs> with today's conditions, right? With the pandemic, now our, our country, we're having uh, strong work from home policies has been going on for what around eight to 10 weeks. It's interesting to put that in context with global talent in the global market, right? So I'm, I'm interested to get your thoughts on, you know, how does work from home possibly change the decision-making considerations of global talent? Yeah, let's take this in a couple of steps. Mm -hmm. So the, the first step, uh, and this is actually chapter number two in, in, the, in the book, The Gift of Global Talent, uh, looks at the role of what we call talent clusters. And these are the places like you know, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Boston, uh, New York, Austin, Texas, and so forth, where you really have a lot of talent, both domestic and foreign, that comes in, into one location. And uh, one of the things that we, we try to introduce and, uh, and understand in that is both the scale that these clusters have now achieved, uh, and then also, how can you do that? How can you have so many people, all, all these sort of developers, programmers, entrepreneurs, and everyone is going to Silicon Valley. And the more you even put people there, the more that others want, want to, to come and, and, and join that. And that gets into some very sort of special conditions of the type of work goes back to the knowledge economy that you began with uh, the conversation, where if you are looking at sectors where you're mainly about creating products that are for global markets uh, and really what you need to have in terms of the recipe for doing the, the business is skilled workers and talented people working together, then these clusters can grow in size and, and be able to take on a um, a strength that that's that's surprising. Uh, one of the uh, kind of quotes or stats that I, I like to sort of point to the, to help everyone understand why global talent's important for Silicon Valley, uh, and then why Silicon Valley is the place that so many people are trying to be a part of today, or at least understand what's going on, mm -hmm. is that when you go back to 1975, about one in every 220 patents in America was created by an Indian or Chinese inventor living in the San Francisco Bay Area. So probably enough to get like a news article in the local, like little, you know, Silicon Valley news, something like that, but it wasn't anything substantial. Today, that number is one out of every 11. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that, that's two ethnic groups in one supercluster. And to get a sense of what one out of every 11 patents means, if I took the state that patents the least, and add in the second state, third state, fourth state, and so forth, you have to add up 28 states before you get to one out of every 11 patents. Mm -hmm. So 
think about global talent coming into one spot and how that has enlivened the innovation process in there and then the disproportionate nature uh, uh, to that work. So that's, that shows you a bit of the strength. Now, the challenge is that it is bloody expensive to live in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, if you can, I mean, like, but, but it's, it's, it's wage rates and it's also the rental prices and, and so forth that, that people pay. And so these talent clusters were already kind of entering that red zone, you know, like in terms of it, it was harder to imagine how we're going to grow their spaces even more. And so remote access, remote work, trying to find ways to distribute the work more broadly outwards from those talent clusters was already a high priority pre the coronavirus uh, coming to town uh, and was something that there was a, both experimentation by businesses and also places that were attempting to be like a, a natural hub, a virtual hub linking into uh, into some of the, the, the talent clusters. So when you think about now adding in this sort of work from home coronavirus and so forth, uh, there are some things that we I think of all experience over the last two to three months that will help us say, yes, that's something that we may have underestimated what we could do with that going forward. And I kind of usually think of if the team has already been kind of established, I know you, Ian, you know, we know Fred, we know Jane, we, we, we have all the people like in our team, we, we understand how we work together right. uh, and we're working in a relatively known space. Then I think all of us have been sort of, pleasantly surprised at how well the technology is going to allow us to distribute that work out. On the other hand, I think we run the risk of over um, projecting how much we could do this in an environment where it's brand new work or where you and I have not created this relationship beforehand. Mm -hmm. How are we going to work together on new and innovative stuff when, when we don't have that chemistry and glue and we haven't like, I haven't gotten that way that I can just get a sense from you as to, you know, how, you know, uh, I really know what's on his mind. It's something different than what we're talking about right now on, on Zoom. And so those are places that we're going to need to learn about. Uh, and they're the places where, you know, tacit knowledge, being at that leading edge, where, where that's still vital. I think that's still going to happen uh, in talent mm -hmm. clusters uh, going forward. I think it's still going to be attractiveness for uh you know, for people around the world that are trying to get to that frontier uh, to come to those locations. I often point this out to my, my graduate students uh, who are a very, very global bunch. If they say first, every academic paper that we are looking at in our graduate student seminar is available online, has been for a long, long time, you know. Second, you can get whatever kind of recordings you want of faculty members giving lectures about these topics all online. And yet there's some kind of, you know, vital thing that happens when everyone comes and is, you know, kind of in, in, in closer proximity and is able to identify and build those ideas. Now, we, we also worry that not only are ideas spreading by close proximity, viruses are spreading by close proximity. And so that's going to be a, a new challenge for us to kind of, you know, bring the balance to. But we have a lot of history of saying that, you know, those types of activities are very difficult to do in a pure right. virtual sense. And they're probably going to remain rooted. Whereas in many other places where the team established, you're working in a known space, I think you're going to see a lot of, uh, of businesses kind of saying we should adjust right. our footprint. 
and we should adjust right. kind of how so we're doing So in it. terms of exchange of information, even though that the information is uh, available, whether it's online or internet or through video chat, nothing really can quite replace that in-person exchange, you building that rapport with whether your classmates or your colleagues, right? Really building that understanding, that full understanding with one another and how that information travels within proxy of location, you know, just being in that area, you might overhear another conversation about somebody else doing the startup and it kind of coincides with what you're doing. So you go over to their lunch table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the, the complementary of, of, of codified knowledge with tacit knowledge. And the tacit knowledge is vital. And you brought up Steve Jobs a little bit earlier when they were devi- you know, designing the new campuses. It was about creating shared spaces where people would bump into each other. Mm. Uh, and by bumping into each other, you would be able to spark some ideas or make some connections between what this department was doing and what that one was doing that otherwise you wouldn't have planned. Uh, and, and the leadership, the very top of Apple, could never orchestrate all of that themselves. So they're trying to create the culture and the setup uh, and the framing that would allow those types of uh, action to happen. I think the other thing to to highlight here is even though technology can push us into a weightless, distanceless, quote, world, Mm. doesn't mean that it always, in the end, produces that spreading out. Mm -hmm. In in fact, sometimes we find that technology can be remarkably um, reinforcing to the places that we had, and uh, you know, kind of, you know, ask this question rhetorically on on a podcast. Of course, uh, you know, what's the number one destination of emails from Harvard Business School? And both pre and also post coronavirus, but even pre coronavirus, it was Harvard Business School. And in fact, if I had said, "Well, you know, I work on the second floor of the Rock Center at Harvard Business School," I'd say, "What was the number one destination of emails from the second floor of the Rock Center of Harvard Business School?" It would have been the like second the floor of the Rock Center of Harvard Business School. Yeah. The same would have been true for phone calls. Uh, and uh, so the, these are technologies that really help us communicate. This is, but there's a lot of work that now that says if, if Ian and I can really interact collaboratively at some distance, that also then makes it ever more valuable and precious for those moments when we're able to be face to face. Because whatever we develop, you know, the, our capacity to collaborate after we've been face-to-face really can make it even more valuable for us to be face-to-face. And then a kind of a final thing to kind of highlight this is that you have this sort of almost a, a race that's happening between the technologies that are about production and then also the technologies that are about sort of distribution and scale. So the more that we operate in a world where the app store or iTunes or, you know, the e-commerce cloud, the, internet, the more that we are creating products that are competing in a global sense with other products from around the world, the more that getting it right really, really matters. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and, and so that ironically, just because even though we could do it by email, you and I have to be so much on the same page uh, and we have you know, it's so valuable for us to, to make sure that we have the best that we're going to invest in, in coming together. Uh, and, you know, one way of, uh, of trying to more directly kind of quantify this 
If you look at the top real estate prices in places like Boston, New York, uh, San Francisco, and elsewhere, mm -hmm. both in terms of like those cities relative to their surrounding regions, but also in terms of like Wall Street versus the rest of Manhattan or Market Street in San Francisco versus the rest of San Francisco or Kendall Square in Boston versus the rest of Boston. Those real estate prices have never been as accentuated and valuable as they are right now. And we, uh, we don't have the update from the COVID crisis and okay. so forth, but, but that was the, the sense of in this world of, you know, we can move things around a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things have become weightless being at the right place, at the right time has become ever more valuable. Right. Wow. This, uh, Bill, I, I really appreciate you coming on and to give us uh, full context of where we are in terms of economics and our global competitiveness. And it's interesting to hear that you're not fully sold, not fully sold on the, the Twitter Jack Dorsey work for home indefinitely <laughs> structure that there is still value in being in person, having that person in person contact and exchanging those ideas to make sure that we're on the same page. So uh, as this continues uh, for maybe the next time uh, you come on, maybe we'll have to do a part two. We can talk about the trend towards gig economy. So less so of being employee of one company, you're almost your own, uh, you're your own boss and your own contractor, your own, uh, you know, I would say mercenary. <laughs> in a sense, you know, your talents for hire uh, and it's open to the, the global market. We can leave that there, but that's for the, the, the next conversation. <laughs> well, that would also require some pontification, <laughs> but uh, it's always great to do that. And thanks for having me on there. I think this is um, an, a, a, a very important time. There's a lot of questions right now about the appropriate global mm -hmm. integration mm -hmm. that we should have. And there's going to be a lot of sort of pushback in, in the near term that comes through um, the election cycles and so forth against uh, immigration, against our, our, our sort of talent base. And yet, when we look towards the long run, where we have all these technology changes that are still happening, we have all the demographic uh, challenges that are going to come with aging populations and needing to, to be at, at the forefront. I, I think we are in an important spot where we need to show to the country and, uh, and to the voters and to the world that this is a is a good thing. We can make it a lot better, uh, but we need to, to begin making that those cases argument. I appreciate you Thank having you. me on the podcast. Thank you to lead researcher Con Branch, assistant producers Luke Bianco and David White, and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.